drove up to Bloomington, Indiana last week, and I did a radio spot in the afternoon. I had a gig that night, but I did a radio spot at WFHB and saw my old buddy Jim Mannion and had a nice chat with him. It was fun to get to catch up a little bit. And I went over to the gig, and it was at uh, Deer Park, something or other music series. A really, really fun gig and nice folks. And a whole lot of folks showed up from Indianapolis, a lot of people from southern Indiana. Had some folks drive in from as far away as St. Louis, and I appreciate that. But uh, afterwards, the promoters were nice enough to put me up in a three-bedroom apartment all by myself, two baths, and I felt kind of lonesome there. But I got up real early in the morning and went over to Hoagie Carmichael's grave. He was born there in Bloomington, Indiana, and he's a, one of the Hoosiers that we're most proud of. If you don't know who Hoagie Carmichael is, he wrote songs like Stardust, Georgia on my mind, and just a great songwriter. And, uh, you know, one of the, like I said, one of the Hoosiers that we're most proud of. And I went ahead and just started a slow drive back to Nashville and drove around southern Indiana just hanging out. And, and I was just north of Bedford, Indiana, and went to Oolitic. They mine all of this limestone in the area. Just a ton of limestone comes out of there. And there's a hole in the ground that I visited. It's a rock quarry. And all of the limestone that was used to build the Empire State Building in New York was taken from that hole in the ground in southern Indiana. And I had a nice walk around there. It was really cold, but it was fun. And I thought about the brain drain that I've heard of my entire life, about how our best and brightest in Indiana just always seemed to leave. And when I was a kid, they would talk about the brain drain constantly. How do we get the kids to stay? And... It seemed like the limestone going to New York and being used for something beautiful and leaving a hole in the ground in southern Indiana was a bit of a metaphor for that. And I thought about myself for a little bit and felt like I was part of that in some way and got a little bit more lonesome and and I began that long drive back to Nashville. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. For at least a year now, I've been trying to think of a way to do an episode about how folk songs evolve and they get reinvented over time. There's a long tradition of that. And I couldn't think of a way to deliver it for the longest time. And it finally made sense to me. And I started thinking about the Wabash Cannonball and where that song started out and how it's become this huge part of our culture and part of the American songbook. So for this episode, I'm going to fly solo, and I'm going to try to tell that story myself. And I should give a disclaimer right up front that this isn't exactly uh, a university lecture. You know, this is uh, an oral tradition, and there's a lot of things 
that you don't know how true some of it is. I'll try to say when I don't know if something is fact, but I guarantee you it will be entertaining, and I think you're going to enjoy this. I know I've been completely overwhelmed reading all of the different stuff to try to put this together, and it's been quite fun, and I've learned a lot. So here's the Wabash Cannonball. I guess the best place to start this would be right after the Civil War. There were a lot of men that didn't have jobs after the war ended, and they would travel, they would hop freight trains because they would hear about work, maybe in the Northwest, working as uh, lumberjacks in the forest. They would hear about work, so they'd hop a freight train, and they would go out there, work that job for as long as it lasted, maybe a week, maybe a couple months, and when that job was done, they would get back on the train and look for jobs elsewhere. You know, they'd go to the ports, and they would work uh, loading ships. They would go out and work in fishing boats, working on ships. They'd work in the fields. They'd work in orchards, just doing any kind of manual labor that they could find. And they would travel back and forth between these jobs on trains. And uh, these men became known as hobos. And th these guys would live in hobo jungles. When they would get off a train and they wouldn't have a job, they would stay in these places called hobo jungles. They'd just be a, an encampment of different men. And they would sit around and tell stories, you know, as, as guys do when they're sitting around. And one of these stories that they would tell was about this mythical train that would carry hobos to heaven called the Wabash Cannonball. And when the hobos would die, the Wabash Cannonball would come through and pick them up and take them on. And there would always be comfortable seats and free food on this train, which was important to hobos. There were a lot of legends that floated around this uh, train, like Paul Bunyan's brother, Cal Bunyan. He built the longest set of railroad tracks in the world, and he got these huge, huge pieces of iron and made the rails. And the, t <laughs> the railroad ties were so big, they were made of redwood trees, like the entire tree would be one railroad tie. You know, the trains were made up of 700 cars, and it was so powerful and fast that the train would arrive to the destination one hour before its original departure. You know, these are the kind of stories that hobos would tell. And one night the train actually flew off from the tracks and flew into the sky, you know, with the steam horn blowing and a lantern shining. And it's said that on clear nights you can still hear that whistle blowing throughout the land. But that's kind of where the Wabash Cannonball started. It became such a popular song for these hobos to sing around campfires that it just continued on. In 1882, when a guy named J.A. Roth published a sheet music to a song called The Great Rock Island Route, the lyrics are like this. They're a little bit different than what you might remember. But it's now listen to the jingle, the rumble and the roar, as she dashes through the woodland, speeds along the shore. See the mighty rushing engine, hear her merry bell ring out as they speed along in safety on the Great Rock Island Route. So that was just the sheet music. And I'm going to go ahead and read from the Encyclopedia of Great Popular Song Recordings, Volume 2, by Stephen Sullivan, to give you an idea of the first recordings of this. To quote, The very first recording of Wabash Cannonball by the country duo Orla Clark and Edens in March 1928 was commercially unissued. Hugh Cross made the first issued recording of the song on April 9, 1929 as a solo vocal with guitar for Columbia Records. He also cut another version for Vocalion under the pseudonym Ballard Cross four months later. 
The Carter family recorded it on November 24th, 1929, basically in the form we know it today, although the, with a few different lines in the middle. But the Carter's version wasn't released by Victor until November 1932. Its biggest sales were actually on a Montgomery Ward reissue. Acuff's Crazy Tennesseans made the song a part of their very first recording session on October 20th, 1936. That recording, which basically followed the Hugh Cross text, featured a vocal by Sam Dynamite Hatcher, the band's harmonica player and occasional singer. Acuff himself is heard only making train whistle sounds in the background on an imitation train whistle inspired by the two-plus years he spent as a callboy on the Louisville and Nashville Railroad in Knoxville. Remarkably, this record was not commercially issued until 1938, indicating the company's lack of faith in its potential. However, after two and a half years of minimal activity, it emerged as a major hillbilly hit in 1942. The 1947 version, the one that made it a true classic, was the first time Acuff recorded the vocal on the song. However, country historian Bill Malone says that he'd been singing it constantly on the Grand Ole Opry for seven years as well as on the road before that. Tommy Magnus is featured on fiddle, Pete Kirby on dobro, Lonnie Wilson on guitar, Joe Sinkin on bass, and Jimmy Riddle on harmonica. It's interesting to note that Magnus had also been the fiddler and featured performer on the original but commercially unissued version of another enduring railroad classic, the Orange Blossom Special, by the aforementioned Roy Hall Group in 1938. I should point out right now that Acuff's version was a huge, huge hit. And it's one of the 40 largest selling records ever released. And it sold over 10 million copies. And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland compiled a list of 500 songs that they say shaped rock and roll. And Wabash Cannonball is the oldest song on that list. As we're talking about songs evolving, I feel like I should throw in that we don't look at songwriting today the way that people looked at it back when. True folk singers back when, it was expected of you and it was encouraged of you to copy songs like melodies from songs that came before you. It was just you're building on a tradition that someone else started. And nowadays we look we look down on that. That's a very bad thing in our culture. But that was a, like I said, it was expected of you. So there's so many different versions of a song like the Wabash Cannonball with completely different lyrics. It'll be the same tune, but it'll be a different song. Uh, Woody Guthrie wrote uh, Grand Coulee Dam, and it's the tune of the Wabash Cannonball. You know, there's a lot of examples about that. You know, songwriters like Bob Dylan have done this, and they've caught a little bit of flack in the past, but like Hollis Brown, it's the same melody as Pretty Polly, which is from the 1920s, and Masters of War was taken from Gene Ritchie's Nutterman Town, which is an English folk song. The roots go way back to the Middle Ages. And Towns Van Zant, Tecumseh Valley, it's the exact same melody as Barbara Allen, which is a, a folk song that a guy like Towns would have known, but people today don't learn those songs, sadly. But like I said, that was common, and it wasn't a bad thing. It was just part of how things worked. When I was a kid, I would watch my grandfather, who played bluegrass music, and he would play with his friends, and you know, he'd play Wabash Cannonball, and he would sometimes sing the Roy Acuff version. He'd sometimes sing the Carter Family version, and I didn't really understand why there were different lyrics. And then when his friends would sing it, they would sing, you know, different lyrics also, and I didn't get that. I, it was confusing to me. And later in life, I realized that there's just so many different versions floating around. 
And this leads me to something that I really want to bring up. Uh, it's a little side story. There's a folk singer in Chicago named Art Theme. In 1961, he met at Hobo, who was a fiddler uh, somewhere in Chicago. This is a 93-year-old hobo named Paul Durst. So this guy started telling him a lot of stories, and he seemed really interesting. And Art Theme had the presence of mind to think, man, this guy's lived. I, I should probably record some of this. So he got his reel-to-reel tape recorder, which was extremely heavy, and carried it to this guy, Paul Durst, and he recorded him telling stories about his life and singing some songs. He told these great stories. You know, Paul Durst was born in 1868, and his parents were from Switzerland. And he would travel around with Buffalo Bill Cody, and they had the same facial hair. They looked the same. They'd travel around and do these Wild West shows. They ended up over in Europe during a, doing a Wild West show, and when they got to Germany, someone discovered that all their cattle had hoof and mouth disease, which was this terrible disease. And anytime cows had it or cattle had it, they had to be killed on the spot so that it wouldn't spread. So they killed all of their cattle. And they ended up penniless coming back from Europe. And Buffalo Bill Cody ended up working out some kind of a deal with P.T. Barnum, where he started up the Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show that became the big phenomenon that we know. You know, and he became the legend that we know of Buffalo Bill. And Paul Durst just had to go back to work. And he became a migrant worker. You know, he was a fiddler. He was a hobo. He would play his fiddle on the trains. And he learned all of these songs and stories from these hobos along the way. And he shared all these stories to Art Theme. And uh, one of the songs that he sang was a song called Bo's Accommodation. And Bo is short for hobo. So hobo's accommodation. And it was another version of Wabash Cannonball that, until he shared it on that recording, nobody knew it existed. It somehow had been lost to history. And Art Theme had the presence of mind to go ahead and preserve it. And he recorded it later using Paul Durst's version. I don't know if this these recordings with Paul Durst are online anywhere. I couldn't find them myself. It might be out there somewhere, but I just had it from a tape that got spread around and got to hear it. But it's a wonderful little piece of history that is worth looking up. Dizzy Dean was a great baseball player, just a great pitcher, and he played for the St. Louis Cardinals and the Chicago Cubs, and extremely outspoken, colorful person, a lot like Muhammad Ali or Joe Namath or Terry Bradshaw. He had the gift of gab, and when he got out of pitching, he ended up being a sports commentator, and he would do the games for, for CBS. It kind of became his trademark to where he would sing the Wabash Cannonball at the beginning of the broadcast, so it the song had gotten into American culture so much that even the jocks knew it and were singing it on TV. I have a really good memory of my childhood of watching basketball with my grandfather, and we would watch IU games. But when Larry Bird was at Indiana State, that was a huge, a huge deal, and they were obviously a great team, and they went into the national championship game undefeated. He faced off against Magic Johnson and the Michigan State Spartans, the fight song for Indiana State University is the Wabash Cannonball. So I have these great memories of watching Larry Bird post up, you know, and drain these jump shots and just be Larry Bird, just be great, going head-to-head against Magic Johnson, who was also great, while the band would play the Wabash Cannonball in the corner. So it kind of seems like, the, to me, a little bit of a soundtrack to Larry Bird. And I guess there's other universities also who 
use that. I don't know if it's their official fight songs. I've heard Kansas State University. I've also heard University of Texas uses this. I don't know if it's their official fight song or not. But for me, I think of it as the fight song for the Indiana State Sycamores and Larry Bird. I feel like I should also say that Roy Acuff lived here in East Nashville about a mile, mile and a half from where I'm at right now. And he's buried just another mile, mile and a half in a cemetery from where I'm at right now, right here in my home. And he's buried right next to Hank Snow, Jimmy Martin, and Earl Scruggs, and, you know, amongst other greats. But I just wanted to throw that in there and say it's a beautiful place and you ought to come by and pay your respects next time you're in Nashville. A lot of people would assume that the Wabash Cannonball was a train engine that existed and not something mythical. But in reality, there wasn't a run or a train called the Wabash Cannonball until later, after Roy Acuff's version became really popular and the song made its way through American culture. They renamed a stretch between Detroit and St. Louis. They called it the Wabash Cannonball. And it would leave once in the morning going each way, and it would go once overnight each way. It became a really popular route, and they would carry passengers and mail, and it went right through the heart of the Midwest. It would start, say, if you left Detroit in the morning, you'd go through Adrian, Michigan, and then you'd cross over into Ohio to Montpelier, and you'd cross over into Indiana and Fort Wayne and Huntington, Wabash. You'd go to Peru. And Peru, that's interesting to me because there were a lot of circus performers that called Peru, Indiana home, and in the off-season they would stay there. And now there's a a Circus Hall of Fame museum in Peru that I've visited, which is a really nice stop that I would recommend to people. But you continue from Peru to Logansport to Lafayette to Attica to Williamsport. Then you cross over into Illinois to Danville, Tolono, Beaumont, Decatur, Taylorsville, Lichtfield, Edwardsville, Granite City, and then over into Missouri to St. Louis, your final stop. This went on for quite a while, and then when Amtrak came into existence, they decided they would get rid of this route, and that left a lot of the people in these small towns along the way with no train anyway, and they were kind of isolated and a little unpopular. But in 1971, there was the final run of the Wabash Cannonball, And Utah Phillips tells a great story about how he was in Detroit and he heard that the final run was taking place. So he went down and he bought a ticket and he got on a train for the final run. According to him, he says that uh, it was filled with country music stars, country music singers that were doing everything that they could to to get a photo op. And in my time in Nashville, I can can completely believe that because there's nothing that will keep a, a singer here in Nashville, you know, you don't want to get between him and a camera or her and a camera. You get hurt really bad. But one of the good things he said is that Roy Acuff was on the train and he was doing yo-yo tricks off of the caboose. And that sounds like a pretty great thing to have witnessed. There's also an episode of On the Road with Charles Kuralt, where Charles Kuralt was actually on that train and he filmed the last ride and they used it for an episode and I don't know if you've ever seen any episodes of that, but I love Charles Corral. The man had a wonderful life and has had the perfect job where he could travel across America, visit the small towns, and see interesting things and meet great people and have a, a major TV network pay you a bunch of money to do it. But um, as an aside, 
25 years ago, there was a girl I just started seeing and we went to a bookstore and I saw a Charles Kuralt book and I picked it up and was going to buy it. And she actually made fun of me for, for wanting to get that. Like there was something wrong with me for actually liking Charles Kuralt. Like that was uncool. And it was at that very moment that I realized that I did not need to be seeing her anymore. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen her since. In the Roy Acuff version, he sings, here's the Daddy Claxton. And I've always wondered, who is Daddy Claxton? And in the earlier versions, they don't mention Daddy Claxton. At least you don't hear it in the Carter family version. They say Daddy Cleeton. We don't really know who that is. In the Paul Durst version, he says, here's to Montana Whitey. And Utah Phillips says that when the hobos would sing this song originally, they would call out people who have died before them, other hobos. They would call out people like, here's to Steam Train Mari, you know, here's to Fish Bones, here's to Slow Motion Shorty. And they would call out these names of the hobos, and it would be a way for them to re- remember and mourn. But I've wondered who Daddy Claxton is, and there's a lot of different versions of, a, of that. And one of the versions, one of the theories, is that Roy Acuff's middle name is Claxton, and he just kind of shot it out himself. And that might be true, I don't know. But my favorite story is Daddy Claxton was an African-American farmer in Alabama. Like a lot of farmers in the late 1890s, he was hurting pretty bad financially. And, and the railroads had a monopoly. All of the crops and livestock went to market by rail. You know, Cars and trucks didn't exist yet. So only one railroad served most counties, and even when two existed, they didn't compete with each other. They just agreed upon a common rate, so the farmers would have to pay whatever that rate would be. And uh, that just, you know, that just killed a farmer trying to make any kind of a profit. So the Farmers Alliance was an interracial organization that predated the Populist Party, and they protested and they tried to fight it, but they didn't, they weren't able to do anything. So Daddy Claxton you know, this African-American farmer took matters into his own hands and he stole a train. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he didn't really know what to do. This is only partial solution. He didn't have tracks or anything. So eventually they caught him and uh, they charged him with theft and brought him to trial. But uh, he got off because the jury wouldn't convict him for it. So he became this folk figure and this folk hero. And... I'm sure you can tell that's my favorite version, and I hope that that's the truth. So here's the Daddy Claxton. May his name forever stand and always be remembered through the courts of Alabama. His earthly race is over. The curtains round him fall. We'll carry him on to glory on the Wabash Cannonball. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to suggest that maybe you go off and listen to somebody's version of Wabash Cannonball, or maybe pick a little bit yourself. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. 
leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, enjoy my music, enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.